When I was initially diagnosed, if somebody said that you can eat as much as you want of fruits, of starchy vegetables, I would laugh at them. Eventually, as I tried different things, I eventually got the information. And it was really the information and the examples of other people that got me started and really opened up my mind. Like, hey, wait a minute, there could be something here. Well, hello there. And welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen this week, or a view, or a download. Wherever it is in the world that you are, we appreciate the fact that you are here. Today, we are answering your questions on the show, and we're going to be doing so as we try to master diabetes with Dr. Cyrus Kambata and Robbie Barbero. Here's the thing about these guys. I love these guys. They have both lived with type 1 diabetes for years, but they're also living examples that by making good food decisions, you can take back control of your insulin resistance. And now they are devoting their lives to improving the lives, improving the health of others who have diabetes, even type 2 diabetics. And today, they will be here to field your questions about reversing diabetes with diet. They've also got some practical advice about how to keep things healthy when unhealthy foods are everywhere around you, sometimes even in the most difficult places in the world to find healthy food. How can you do it? Cyrus and Robbie are going to let you know. We're also going to be discussing the link between diabetes and Alzheimer's, and that's one that hits close to home for me, so I'm super glad that somebody wrote in to ask about that. And we're going to be talking about when somebody is just transitioning to a plant-based diet and they have diabetes, how do you reduce your insulin shots when you're making that transition? They have a lot of advice when it comes to that and We're going to be talking about their new book, Mastering Diabetes, because that's what these guys are. They are masters when it comes to this stuff. So this show is filled with your questions, and now it's time to get those answers. It's time to defeat diabetes with Dr. Cyrus Kambata and Robbie Barbero. As we continue here on the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee with the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Really excited to be welcoming back to the show Dr. Cyrus Kambata and Robbie Barbero, better known as the team from Mastering Diabetes. And now they have their very first book out by that same name. Gentlemen, welcome to the Exam Room. Thanks so much for uh, having us here today, Chuck. We always love talking with you. Always great talking with you, Chuck. Guys, the book is fantastic. I, I, I was really struck just right up front. The the dedication that you had in this book, I think, sums up the next 300 pages or so perfectly. It said, this book is dedicated to those willing to challenge the status quo and to those wel- willing to reevaluate outdated and incomplete scientific principles. That's a pretty powerful dedication there, guys. <laughs> you know what? It's I, I appreciate you uh, talking about that, actually, because as we were putting the book together, I was thinking to myself, I was like, what, there's gotta be some way that we can encapsulate, you know, like encourage people to want to read this book and really try and encapsulate what we're trying to communicate. And, and in reality, unfortunately, the world of diabetes has a 
whole collection of dietary folklore is what I like to refer to it as and a whole bunch of outdated principles from like the 1970s and earlier um, that I, that I do believe were created with the right um, mindset, but just have been proven over and over and over again to not be very effective, but yet as a medical community, they're still being practiced. So that's what that is all about is that, you know, like if you, if you approach diabetes with an open mind, you can get some incredible results and we're trying to open people's mind to what is really possible. And I'm pumped to talk to you guys a little bit about that. But Robbie, let me ask you, I mean, in the book, again, right up front, you, you mentioned the total cost of diabetes in the healthcare system in the U.S. It's estimated at more than three and uh, three hundred twenty seven billion dollars in 2017. And, and it's going to go up to uh, nearly a half a trillion, five hundred billion dollars over the next decade. That's a that's a huge, huge, huge problem that everyone is going to wind up paying for. It's a scary amount of money. And the truth is, we can eliminate the vast majority of that cost. And you're exactly right. Whether you have diabetes or not, this is impacting your life. Uh, this type of expense is, is not good for our country. And this book really gives people the solution to solving it. I think that broken down per person, you estimated it was close to $14,000 per year if you actually have diabetes. That's an enormous cost, and certainly that's that's a lot of money that not a lot of people have. And you look at the raising uh, the rising rates of diabetes, I mean, it's it's just staggering. So something definitely needs to be done. So let's bring some hope and spread some joy to the world here, boys. Um, this this is a, a personal mission for both of you guys because you, you both have been living with type 1 diabetes for, if you put it together, it's four decades combined for you. Um, when you were first diagnosed, if somebody came to you and they read that dedication line to you and said that, you know, we need to rethink the status quo, we need to change up your diets – what would your mind have said at that point? Would you have been like, man, this guy is just talking out of the side of his mouth? Or would you have been like, hmm, he might be onto something? Is it kind of scary prospect for you? No, you know, actually that, that happened to me in the first year of living with diabetes because I was, I was adopting a low-carbohydrate diet, which is the sort of traditional medical model for dealing with diabetes. And it, it flat out just wasn't working. It was making my blood glucose very hard to control. And my insulin use was going up over the course of time. So I'm sitting here thinking to myself, I'm doing what the doctors are telling me to do. I'm following the traditional, you know, low carbohydrate methodology, but yet I have low energy. My muscles hurt. I can't exercise the way I want. My blood glucose is a disaster and my insulin use is going up. And then at that time in my life, when I started looking for more information, I came across another healthcare professional. His name is Dr. Doug Graham. And he put that exact philosophy in my head. He said, you know what, let's Let's think about things in a completely different manner. And once you open your mind to that, then, you know, the world is your oyster. And, and at that point, because my health was in, you know, a pretty crappy state, I didn't have a choice. And so I said to myself, okay, let me open my mind and let me just do a quick 30-day experiment using a different mindset and using a different, you know, combination of foods. And as a result of that, that was the gateway for me being able to, be, to open my mind to the idea that, just because something isn't mainstream doesn't mean it's wrong. And more importantly, things that are often very mainstream oftentimes have a flawed methodology. And that's the situation that we're dealing with with diabetes in today's world. 
Robbie, same question to you. Uh, was there any initial reluctance on your part? So I would say if in the beginning, when I was initially diagnosed, if somebody said that you can eat as much as you want, when you're hungry till you're satisfied of fruit, of starchy vegetables like potatoes, yams, butternut squash, intact whole grains, beans, I, I would definitely I would laugh at them. I would be like, I, I don't really think that's possible. Like, look, I, I done it. I, I could, I test my blood glucose readings and I just, I don't really think that's true. And I think, um, a lot of people are in that same boat. It's like, they look at their numbers, they look at their experience. Like, this is not, this is not possible. And that's where, you know, this education to come in of why is it challenging to metabolize carbohydrate rich energy from whole foods and really understanding the science behind it becomes so important. But, Eventually, as I, you know, went on and on and on, I tried different things, I, I eventually got the information. And it was really the information and the examples of other people that got me started and really opened up my mind. Okay, wait a minute. There could be something here. All right, boys. Let's, let's dive into some science behind this. You guys conclude that a low-fat, plant-based diet is the way to go. And obviously, if you're eating that kind of diet, that's going to bring carbs into the picture Big time. And as you were just saying, traditional diabetic wisdom says that carbs are the enemy. They must be limited at all cost, right? But on a plant-based diet, they are not the enemy. These things are champion. They're put up on a pedestal. They're like royalty. They're coveted. They're embraced. And dare I even say, gentlemen, carbs are worshipped to some extent. So what's going on here? Traditional treatment says avoid them, but you're saying pucker up and kiss the carb ring. So what is the science here? What is it that so many people are missing? This is a great question. And this, I think, is sort of the crux of the, of the, of the diabetes argument here or the, of the confusion in the diabetes world, I'll say. Uh, the traditional approach to, to improving blood glucose control in people living with diabetes is to eat a low-carbohydrate diet. And a low-carbohydrate diet has many names. It's either the Atkins diet or the South Beach diet or the Paleo diet or now a ketogenic diet. These are very, very popular ways of eating, and they've gotten more popular over the course of time. So there's literally millions of people around the planet either living with some form of diabetes or not who are adopting these low-carbohydrate methodologies. Now, the reason why it's such a pervasive mindset in the world of diabetes is because for the longest time, for 50 plus years, what medical practitioners have discovered and written about in the scientific literature is that if somebody comes to you and they have a high blood glucose value, either in the fasting state or in the post-meal state, and they begin to lower their carbohydrate intake, so they reduce or eliminate foods like pastas and breads and cereals and potatoes and rice and corn and fruits, then their blood glucose becomes more controllable. And many doctors around the world have seen this. And so as a result of that, they got interested. They say, oh, wait a minute. If we just teach people how to eat a low carbohydrate diet, then all of a sudden their glucose becomes more controllable. Their A1C value drops, which is just a marker of your average blood glucose value. And their fasting insulin drops and their fasting glucose drops. So those are all good things. And it turns out that a, a nice sort of side effect of a low-carbohydrate diet is also rapid weight loss. So for many people living with diabetes who are overweight, a low-carbohydrate diet solves so many problems at once. And that's something that sort of like fueled this idea that a low-carbohydrate diet is the answer for living with 
specifically type 2 diabetes. Now, in the world of type 1 diabetes, you also see the same thing. Robbie and I both have type 1 diabetes. And if we were to both adopt a low carb, very low carbohydrate diet, we would also notice very similar things. Our blood glucose would flatline, our insulin use would come down dramatically. And as a result of that, it would appear on a piece of paper as though we were sort of like solving type 1 diabetes at the same time. So the problem with that methodology, Chuck, is exactly what Dr. Barnard at PCRM also has discovered over the course of his career. It's what many other medical professionals in the plant-based world have also discovered, which is that it is a true statement that by lowering your carbohydrate intake, you you can flatline your blood glucose and you can reduce your A1C and reduce your fasting and post-meal insulin values. So those are all good things. The problem with this methodology, however, is that you, um, in that state, you, uh, you have not fundamentally altered or fundamentally changed the biology of your muscle or your liver to become more glucose tolerant or to become more insulin sensitive. So if we take one step backwards here and we we try and understand what is this insulin sensitivity thing and why are we even talking about it? The root cause of high blood glucose in practically, you know, 95 plus percent of all situations is a thing called insulin resistance. And so when you develop insulin resistance, you increase your risk for prediabetes and then you also increase your risk for type 2 diabetes. And if you're living with any form of, you know, autoimmune diabetes like Robbie and I, uh, you can also become insulin resistant, which makes your blood glucose very, very, very challenging to control. So insulin resistance is really the, the thing that unites all of the different forms of diabetes that makes your blood glucose very challenging to control. So in order to fully solve and, and truly reverse type 2 diabetes, which affects 90 plus percent of the diabetes population, the way to do it is to reverse insulin resistance. Do you, do you, would you agree with that statement? Based off of what you just said, absolutely. Okay, yeah, so the, the logic is actually pretty straightforward. Since insulin resistance causes prediabetes and prediabetes causes type 2 diabetes, if you really want to reverse those situations, then you, you have to reverse the underlying cause, which is insulin resistance. So uh, the way to reverse insulin resistance is actually to eat a low-fat diet, not a low-carbohydrate diet. So let's go back to the low-carbohydrate diet. You eat a low-carbohydrate diet, and it actually improves the symptomology, right? It gets rid of many of the symptoms of diabetes, which is high blood glucose, high insulin, and high A1C. But it does not fundamentally change the biology of your liver, nor does it fundamentally change the biology of your muscle tissue. You're still living with insulin resistance in both of those tissues. You are just not challenging either one of those tissues to metabolize anything that's carbohydrate-rich. And as a result of that, it appears as though you have solved diabetes. The problem, though, is that anytime you eat something that's carbohydrate rich, whether it's a potato, whether it's a bowl of rice, whether it's some fruits, whether it's um, black beans, in that situation, your liver and muscle are still in in an insulin resistant state and they're, they're they're unable to metabolize the glucose that comes from those foods. So as a result of that, if you were to eat any of those foods, then you would find that your blood glucose goes very high and, and type 2 diabetes would come back within a number of hours. Does that make sense? It does. It does quite a bit, as a matter of fact. 
Okay. So, so the idea here, the, the, the sort of take-home message which I want people to understand is that in order to actually improve your health, not only in the short term, but especially in the long term, we have to think about diabetes in a different manner. We can't just be laser focused on trying to get a good A1C and trying to get a good fasting glucose. Those things matter for sure. There's no question about it. But if the, the diabetes world right now is so focused on getting good blood glucose control and getting good um, short-term biomarkers that, that they forget about the fact that your long-term health, 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the road, is, is more important than good glucose control today. And when you eat a low-carbohydrate diet and you look into the actual research, what you'll find is that there's a number of, of studies that indicate that people who are living in an insulin-resistant state uh, or eating a diet that contains meat, cheese, fish, eggs, bacon over the course of time end up developing, they're at a higher risk for many chronic diseases. So a low-carbohydrate diet may solve your blood glucose control problems in the short term, but it actually increases your chronic disease risk in the long term, and that's a huge problem. So that's why we're trying to teach people how to eat a low-fat plant-based whole food diet because a low-fat plant-based whole food diet improves your blood glucose control in the short term brilliantly, and it also drops, significantly drops, your long-term chronic disease risk. So it's a double whammy. And that's what makes it, in our opinion, an approach that's actually more sustainable and more helpful in the long term. And I really like the way that you've laid this out. And we're going to talk about that, how you've laid things out with uh, the red light food and the yellow light food, the green light foods. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. Uh, but Robbie, I, I want to pivot to you and ask about fat. Cyrus there was talking uh, a little bit about that, but let's let's do a deep dive here. So flat out, let me ask you bluntly, what role does fat play in contributing to diabetes? Dr. Barnard has been on the show. Other experts have been on the show time and again, and they say fat, man, that is really the true culprit here uh, when it comes to especially type 2 diabetes. So Neil Barnard and all the researchers that he's citing when it comes to this is absolutely correct. And this scientific research dates back to the 1920s right around when insulin was discovered. So in 1921, insulin was discovered. It was first used in 1922. And in 1926, Dr. Sansom publishes a paper titled The Use of High-Carbohydrate Diets in the Treatment of Diabetes. And in that paper, he found that as he increased the carbohydrate intake, people's insulin sensitivity improved, and therefore their overall health improved. So prior to insulin even being discovered, people with diabetes, it was basically a death sentence. And they were eating a very, very low-calorie, low-carbohydrate diet just to stay alive. And then researchers continued to look into this further. In the 1930s, Dr. Hemsworth found the same thing. The more carbohydrate that people ate, the more insulin-sensitive their tissues became. So what they were finding is that the carbohydrate was increasing, the fat was decreasing. So it truly is excess dietary fat that is the true root cause of insulin resistance, the biggest cause. There are other causes. You know, you can talk about advanced glycation end products, inactivity, um, you know, excess sodium, heme iron. There are other issues, but it truly is dietary fat, particularly saturated fat that is found in animal products that ends up gumming up the cells. That's really what's happening. And you've heard Dr. Barnard say that a million times if you're a frequent listener to this podcast and read his material. It truly is as simple as having excess fat 
in cells that are not designed to store fat. So you're supposed to have plenty of fat in your adipose tissue. You're supposed to have some fat in your muscle and your liver tissue. But when there's too much, insulin is not able to open the door and allow glucose to go out of your bloodstream into your cells. Therefore, you eat a banana, you eat a meal with some quinoa, you eat some beans, and the glucose gets stuck in your bloodstream. So not only do you have excess glucose in your bloodstream, you now have your pancreas trying to secrete excess insulin in order to get that glucose into the cell. So in the book, we have an illustration um, with a wrecking ball. And we have a whole box about how insulin is essentially acting like a wrecking ball. We're producing more and more to really break through and allow the glucose to enter your cells. So again, it truly is as simple as reducing dietary fat intake. Now, it's also important to understand that you can consume too much plant-based fats. And I think a lot, we've seen more and more people coming to us saying, Hey, I follow a plant-based diet and yet I still got diagnosed with pre-diabetes. Like what's going on? I'm doing your program. My blood glucose is still not lowering. What's going on? And oftentimes it's because people are consuming too much plant-based fat, whether that's oils and processed foods, or whether that's accidentally consuming too many foods like nuts and seeds and avocados and foods like that. So, you know, Dr. Barnard, he's talking about, you know, 10, 15% of calories from fat. And that's where we are at as well. And when you're eating whole foods, you don't need to overthink it. You don't need to micromanage your food intake, your fat intake. You just simply eat whole foods that are naturally low in fat and you begin to optimize your insulin sensitivity. Right. So you're not saying that you should go and eat a pint of guacamole every single day. Obviously, avocados loaded with fat. So probably not the healthiest of plant-based food. You know what I'm, I'm trying to get at? Exactly right. But avocado is great. You know, so, I mean, we have the traffic light system. We have the green light, the yellow light, and the red light foods. So you would find avocados and nuts and seeds and coconut meat and olives and soy products all in the yellow category. They're whole foods. They're nutrient dense. They're still loaded with water content and fiber and antioxidants and phytochemicals and all kinds of micronutrients, but they're also naturally high in fat. So when you consume large amounts of those foods, you will end up storing fat in the cells that are not designed to store excess fat, and that will impact your insulin sensitivity. Now, us being people living with type 1 diabetes and having worked with you know, over 3,000 people in our coaching program, we get to see this day in and day out that it truly is as simple as lowering the fat intake to maximize insulin sensitivity. Cyrus, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about something that's very popular right now. You can hardly go on Twitter or Instagram or anybody's fitness blog without hearing about intermittent fasting. And you you talk about this in the book. Matter of fact, you write flat out, quote, not eating is one of the most powerful ways to improve your insulin sensitivity. So talk about the benefits of intermittent fasting when you're trying to bring your diabetes under control. Okay, I, I, I love that you asked this question because... Uh, intermittent fasting truly is one of the most powerful techniques uh, and powerful tools that has ever been discovered by, uh, you know, modern scientists for improving overall metabolic health. And diabetes just happens to be one of the things that gets improved when you adopt an intermittent fasting regimen. We've known the, the true power of calorie restriction since the 1930s. 
there were experiments that were performed way back in the 1930s um, that demonstrated that when you calorie restrict an animal by 25%, 30%, all, all the way upwards of 60% calorie restriction, you can actually not only reduce their chronic disease risk and reduce the symptomology of many chronic diseases, but you can actually add time on this planet. You can actually extend life. And since that time, uh, researchers have been looking for many other ways where, you know, what else can we do to extend life? How can we promote longevity? What about exercise? What about meditation? What about, what about uh, you know, other forms of fasting? And what they found is that calorie restriction is literally the only known mechanism to increase longevity, period, end of story. There's no other way that we've found as a, as a medical community to actually improve long or increase longevity. So fast forward from the 1930s to now. Um, there's been thousands of experiments on calorie restriction, but then uh, researchers also said, you know what, calorie restriction is kind of a daunting task. Because if I asked you, Chuck, if I said, hey, bud, um, if you want to add time on this planet and if you want to reverse many chronic diseases, all you have to do is eat 25 to 30% less calories every single day for the rest of your life. Chances are you might be like, whoa, 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 hold on a second. That's kind of a tall order. Like, I kind of like eating. I don't really want to re reduce my intake of calories. <laughs> and so, you know, there's like an emotional roadblock that many people have to reducing their overall food intake. Hence, the idea of intermittent fasting came around where researchers were like, wait a minute, what if we what if we invented intermittent fasting, which is a way where you can just manipulate the timing of your food intake. And as a result of doing that, maybe you get some some, some of the similar benefits. So that launched a whole collection of studies to understand how intermittent fasting affects metabolic health. So what researchers found is that when you ex ex extend the duration uh, in which nutrients are not present in your blood in high concentrations, then both of those tissues, your muscle and liver, have to go internal and break down the fuel that they've stored. So they end up breaking down glycogen, which is a good thing, glycogen being the stored form of glucose. And in addition to that, they also burn down their stored fatty acid deposits. In your muscle, that's referred to as intramyocellular lipid. And in your liver, it's referred to as intrahepatic triglyceride. So when you force your muscle and you force your liver to burn those lipid stores, there is a direct correlation to insulin sensitivity. The less lipid those two tissues have, the higher, the, the more responsive they are to insulin. And that's a good thing. So by fasting, you're forcing both of those tissues to break down or oxidize their internal fatty acid supplies. And as a result of that, the next time you eat carbohydrate-rich food, the glucose has a really simple time getting inside of those tissues. And as a result of that, your blood glucose control improves, your diabetes health improves, your A1C value drops, and, and your, um, your ability to metabolize carbohydrates as a fuel has gone up dramatically. The last thing I'll say about this is that earlier in this podcast, I said, I said, until you fundamentally change the biology of your muscle and liver, you cannot expect, you cannot claim that you have reversed diabetes or insulin resistance. Intermittent fasting is a method that you can use to fundamentally change the biology of your muscle and liver. And you're, you're fundamentally changing it because you're forcing those two tissues to become insulin responsive. And when they become insulin responsive, 
then your diabetes health dramatically improves. You know, I'm sitting here and I'm listening to this and all I'm picturing is you up on a gigantic stage with a telestrator just breaking all of this down. I bet that both of your live presentations are just epic events. <laughs> I appreciate you saying that. I, I, would, I would like to believe that same thing. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Robbie, we've heard um, Cyrus there talking about uh, longevity, and that kind of got me thinking about somebody who's close to me, uh, up there later in life in her mid-80s at this point, um, been diabetic for, uh, I mean, geez Louise, more than two decades, and uh, recently diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And her blood sugar is just right now, it's out of control, and it's She's living in a facility where the nutritionists um, uh, very much subscribe to that old methodology that we've been talking about. They've told her flat out that she can't eat a banana. So really, they're limiting her fruit intake. And yet they'll turn around sometimes and they'll give her, you know, a big bowl of ice cream. So that's that's a huge problem unto itself. But really, my question is kind of twofold to you is that one is how old is too old to start reaping the benefits of applying your methods here? And two, could her blood sugar, because it's so out of control, also then accelerate the progression of this disease? Do you know, is there any correlation there? Okay. So number one, hearing this story just gets my my blood boiling a little bit and and increases the motivation of why we're doing what we're doing here and why we wrote this book to try and and change this this paradigm really exposing the evidence-based research behind the approach that we're talking about here the mastering diabetes method so in facilities like this woman is in can actually start feeding people a, a really healthy diet and and do so confidently so um, the number one answer is it's never too old. You're never too old to start a, a plant-based diet. So it was actually um, really interesting. When I was working at Forks Over Knives, I would you know publish some content on the blog and then help manage all that stuff. And there's a guy, uh, Dr. Baxter Montgomery, who uh, published a story about a 83-year-old woman who was living with type 2 diabetes. And she reversed her diabetes within weeks, within weeks of making a change to the low-fat plant-based healthy diet that we're advocating. And I'll just never forget that story. It's like a news piece on the local news in Houston, and she's all dancing around now, living this amazing <laughs> life. It's, it's never, never too old. And you're exactly right. Cyrus and I have been describing this whole issue of insulin resistance. And Alzheimer's disease is insulin resistance of the brain. So I'm actually going to toss this over to Cyrus because this is a great topic that he is quite knowledgeable on and I'm going to let him explain a little further about what's going on in the brain when you are living with insulin resistance. Yeah, and I'm actually glad we're talking about this because there's other, just two other researchers uh, named Dean and Aisha Sherzai who are absolutely brilliant when it comes to understanding the connection between your brain health and your metabolic health because when we talk about diabetes, diabetes is predominantly communicated in the context of what's called your peripheral tissues. So your peripheral tissues being your liver, your pancreas, your muscle tissue. Um, and these are sort of like things that are like below your neck, 
right? Everything there is considered peripheral. Um, diabetes is rarely talked about as a condition that affects your brain. But if you go backwards and you try and understand, like, well, why would diabetes even affect your brain in the first place? Um, the main reason is because of the tissues in your body. Practically every tissue is capable of metabolizing multiple fuels and, and using multiple fuels for energy to burn for ATP. So your muscle, as an example, can burn glucose for ATP. It can also burn fatty acids for ATP. It can also burn amino acids for ATP. The same thing happens in your liver, your spleen, your kidneys. They can all burn multiple fuels. When it comes to your brain, your brain is one of the most unique tissues in your body for a thousand reasons, but from a fuel usage perspective, your brain is designed to operate on glucose and only glucose at all times. So your brain does not possess the ability to burn fatty acids. It literally does not have the machinery to do that. Your brain can also not burn amino acids. It does not have the machinery to do that. In addition to that, your brain also cannot store glucose. So what that means is that your brain is operating off of the glucose that is in your blood, which then has to cross your blood-brain barrier in order to get inside of neurons in your brain so that it can be used for energy. So your brain is effectively sipping glucose from your blood 24 hours a day which means that it's very important to keep your blood glucose well controlled so that your brain literally has enough fuel to operate at all times. So one of the problems here is that when you eat a diet that is uh, high in, excuse me, when you eat a diet that actually causes high blood glucose and you become insulin resistant, what ends up happening is that your blood glucose often climbs and it goes, it goes higher in the fasting state and higher in the post-meal state. And as a result of that, there's a higher concentration of glucose in your blood than there's supposed to be, and your brain is exposed to those higher glucose concentrations. And so the, the neurons in your brain actually get inflamed and negatively affected by the fact that there's literally just too much glucose in your blood. Um, now, the converse is also true. When your blood glucose goes very low, if you go into the hypoglycemic range, then your brain is actually starved for glucose. And as a result of that, you end up with all these symptomology of, you know, like you get extremely hungry, your hands start to shake, you kind of get third stage, you can't really talk very well, your vision starts to go funky. And as a result of that, those are sort of all signals that your brain is actually being starved for glucose. So maintaining the right glucose concentration is critical for long-term brain health. And it turns out that when you eat a diet that actually makes you insulin resistant, there's a whole body of research that now actually shows that insulin resistance in your peripheral body in your liver, in your muscle, in your pancreas itself, has a feedback mechanism that also affects the function of your brain. The problem is that you can't really detect that until 20, 30, 40, 50 years into the future. So the insulin resistance that you may be living with right now, maybe you can't feel it in your brain. Maybe you're, you're, you're cognitively very, you know, you're functioning at a high level. But just because you're functioning well today does not mean that 20, 30, 40 years into the future, that your risk for the development of dementia and Alzheimer's is low. In fact, studies indicate that when you live with insulin resistance, and especially if your glucose is high, that your brain activity, uh, your, your risk for cognitive decline is dramatically increased. 
And as a result of that, some researchers now refer to uh, Alzheimer's and dementia as being actually type 3 diabetes. Okay, it's just a sort of like new idea here that, that you can actually have diabetes of your brain, and that's a feedback mechanism from the fact that you're not controlling diabetes in your body well. So the two of them are intricately connected to each other. And the most important thing that, that you can do is make yourself insulin sensitive such that your blood glucose is controlled well. And as a result of doing that, you can preserve brain health in the long term. You know, it, it amazes me that not uh, as many people know about that uh, either. You know, we, we've been talking about changing the way that we think about treating diabetes or approaching diabetes. And, and a lot of people just have not put that connection together there as well as far as cognitive function and diabetes. So uh, personally, from the bottom of my heart, thank you both for shedding some light um, on that for us. Um, I know that uh, we, we're kind of taking up a lot of time, but we can't get out of here without taking some listener questions as well, because I put out on Twitter and Instagram and on Facebook that you guys were coming on the show and everybody was pumped. Turns out that there are a lot of questions from a lot of people when it comes to diabetes. So if you guys are up for it, uh, you feel like fielding a couple of these questions? Let's do it. Let's, let's have some fun. Christopher writes, at what point do you start reducing insulin if you are a type 2 diabetic on a whole food plant-based diet? So there's many people that fall into this category. They're living with type 2 diabetes and they are taking insulin because um, they were they are having a difficult time controlling their blood glucose using only food. So if you are living in this state and you have type 2 diabetes and you are using insulin, uh, one thing that's important to understand is that in, in most situations, you can actually not only get off of insulin, but you can still reverse type 2 diabetes 100%. Okay? You can get rid of it altogether. Now, I'm not going to say that that happens for everybody. I'm going to say that it, w the, the true determinant of whether or not you can actually reduce the amount of insulin that you're using and, and potentially get off of insulin altogether is by measuring what's called your C-peptide value. So your C-peptide value is just a, it's a, it's an indicator of how much endogenous or self-made insulin you can actually produce. So it's, it's a measurement of how much, uh, of what type of insulin secretion capacity your pancreas still has. So you go to the doctor, you say, Hey, can I get a fasting C-peptide test? And they take a blood test and you get the result. You can basically either be low, medium, or high. If you are, if you have a high C-peptide, that's a good thing. That means that you still can manufacture a significant amount of insulin. And as a result of that, your chances of getting to zero insulin are very good, again, if you adopt a low-fat plant-based whole food diet and if you are determined and consistent in that approach. If you have to seek up that value, you can get to you know, zero insulin use within a few months, within maybe even less than a month. You know, it, it's really something that unfolds pretty darn quickly. Um, if you have a medium C-peptide value, that means you still have a very good chance of getting to zero insulin use, and the same thing applies to you, that you can significantly reduce your insulin use within weeks, certainly within a, a month, and certainly within a few months, no questions at all. If you have a low C-peptide value, that's the most important thing to think about. A low C-peptide value means that your, your pancreas is struggling to manufacture insulin, and as a result of that, uh, lifestyle changes may not be sufficient in order to keep you off of insulin. In other words, you're probably going to have to use some amount of insulin because your pancreas just isn't making enough. And as a result of that, you can still reduce the amount that you are injecting into your own body 
um, but you may not be able to get to zero insulin at all. So um, the answer, the short answer is it happens quickly. If you adopted a truly low-fat plant-based whole food diet, the way Dr. Barnard describes, the way that we describe in our book. So, so the, the thing to think about here is that uh, most people are very surprised by how quickly their insulin requirements drop. And that's something that we have noticed over and over again, not only in our, you know, Robbie and my particular situation, but also in, in, the, in the hands of other people that are living with insulin-dependent diabetes. So you can certainly dr- reduce your insulin use within weeks, no questions asked. And again, your C-peptide value is the ultimate determinant of whether or not you can get off of insulin altogether. Robbie, here's here's an important note here. I think that a lot of people might pick up a copy of Mastering Diabetes. They get all gung-ho, and they're just going to go, and they're going to do this on their own. But do you think it's important that they also work with their doctor with this? 100%. I'm so glad you brought that up. Working with your doctor is going to be critical. They know your health history. They understand all the different medications that you are currently using, that you've taken in the past, and communicating with them proactively that, hey, I'm looking to do this program. I'm choosing to do it. We actually have some, some tips in the book and we have some resources on our website where you can print out some paper and bring it in and talk to your doctor and really explain what you're doing and you know, really do it in a way that's not, uh, it's not aggressive or argumentative, but you really say to them in a way that you're on the same team. You want to do this together and you want to do it with their support. It's very important. So you can become over-medicated. This Mastering diabetes method is so effective and can make changes so quickly that you will be taking too much medication. That's when it comes to insulin. That can be specific oral medications. That can be your blood pressure medication. So you really have to be careful. And in the book, we have a specific chapter all about all the diabetes medications that people are prescribed and their side effects and how they work. It's actually one of the chapters we're most proud of. So you can really understand what's going on. And this will allow you to have more educated conversations with your doctor because unfortunately people are often prescribed medications without fully understanding what they're actually doing and knowledge is power and that can really further incentivize you to make these lifestyle changes but no questions asked working with your physician is important and if you don't have a physician that's supportive we suggest looking for a new one and there's many resources on the internet i know i'm pretty sure pcrm has a great resource for finding a, a healthy doctor or a, you know, a supportive doctor. And you can also use telemedicine. I know the Pete, the Barnard Clinic is starting to do more telemedicine within your guys' area of the country. And there's more and more options. We have some listed on our website. So definitely work with your physician and seek out a plant-based physician if you are finding that yours is not supportive. Yeah, and as another resource, something exciting, pretty soon I'm going to have the, the guys from Happy Cow on the show, and they were telling me when I had an opportunity to speak with them that pretty soon they're going to start listing um, doctors on the app as well. So I thought that that was pretty exciting and a very promising resource that's soon to hit the market. Very cool. Next question comes from Rachel Cyrus. This one is for you. I think that this is right in your wheelhouse, man. She writes, is it possible to have a normal A1C but still have diabetes? Yeah, this is one of my favorite questions of all time. Uh, Thank you for asking it. (laughs) Uh, The answer is yes. So let's go back to what we were talking about earlier. When you adopt, let's say you're living with insulin resistance. you living with insulin resistance. It becomes prediabetes. Prediabetes then progresses to type 2 diabetes. 
In that state, you then say to yourself, okay, great. Let me adopt a low carbohydrate diet. Let me adopt a ketogenic diet. So by adopting a ketogenic diet, what ends up happening is that, you know, a number of things could unfold. Number one, you could lose a lot of weight quickly, which is a good thing. Number two, your A1C value can drop dramatically. Your fasting glucose can drop dramatically. Your fasting insulin can drop dramatically. Your blood pressure can drop. Your cholesterol levels can drop. And as a result of that, when you look on a piece of paper, you think to yourself, oh my gosh, a lot of these biomarkers have improved. It looks like this whole diabetes thing is a thing of the past, right? I no longer have diabetes because my fasting insulin is now under 100. My fasting, I'm excuse me, my fasting glucose is under 100. Fasting insulin is under 5. And my A1C is now less than 6.5%. Cool. Problem solved. Um, the truth is that in that particular situation, you could actually still be living with type 2 diabetes without even knowing it. And the reason for that is because there's one other thing that you have to be able to do in order to technically say that you don't have diabetes anymore. And that thing is referred to as an oral glucose tolerance test. Now, an oral glucose tolerance test is a thing that you can do with your doctor. You go to your doctor, you say, hey, I want a glucose tolerance test. What happens is they'll give you a, a solution of water that contains 75 grams of glucose. You drink that solution, and your glucose gets monitored over the course of the next two hours. And ideally, you would measure your glucose every 30 minutes for a two-hour period. If at any point during that two-hour uh, cycle, your blood glucose goes above 200 milligrams per deciliter, that means that you fail the oral glucose tolerance test, and then that is an indication that you have type 2 diabetes. Now, here's the, here's the, the brilliance of this situa situation. The diagnostic criteria to be diagnosed with type 2 diabetes is it includes an oral glucose tolerance test. However, to be undiagnosed and, and to be, to, for people to claim that you don't have type 2 diabetes, an oral glucose tolerance test is rarely used. And that is a huge, huge flaw in the world of diabetes diagnostics. So if you, if you look at how the American Diabetes Association will, you know, their guidelines for actually having type 2 diabetes, they include an oral glucose tolerance test in there. And they say, if you fail the glucose tolerance test, then you have type 2 diabetes, period, end of story. But then if you go into the medical literature and try and figure out, you know, people are claiming that they've reversed type 2 diabetes. You see this all over the place. And in we have yet to find one paper in which they said they reversed type 2 diabetes using a ketogenic diet, as an example, using an oral glucose tolerance test. It's very, it's never used. It's literally never used. And as a result of that, people are misled into believing that they're actually reversing diabetes when they're truly not. Robbie, let's let's go to you for this next question. This is kind of a, a, a practical one that I think that a lot of people can uh, can, can kind of relate to. Uh, this comes from Betsy, who, uh, no surprise here, lives down in New Orleans. So she's asking the question, when your culture is all about partying, such as Mardi Gras, how can you make good decisions? Bad food, she says, is everywhere. Okay. When you are surrounded by nothing but unhealthy options, which I think is, is, is most people, but maybe in this environment, it's particularly worse. You really have to take matters into your own hands and focus on preparation. Preparation and planning will be better than willpower in every single situation. So, for example, 
when you are going to a restaurant, okay, let's say you're eating with friends or family or it's a work occasion, you have a few options. You can pre-eat. You can eat a meal before you go so you're not as hungry when you get to the restaurant and you're okay having a much smaller meal. But you can also take a look at the menu before you go. This day and age, it's easy to access menus online and you can walk into that restaurant knowing exactly what you're going to order. And pretty much every restaurant is going to have some combination of whether they're going to have potatoes on the menu, they might have some beans on the menu, there could be some grains here or there. There are options. There are options on the menu. You piece it together and you learn how to communicate with the waiter and you ask them to make you a special meal. So you can also, um, you know, use just honesty, honest communication. Like, look, I'm, we have some funny jokes in the book about how to communicate with waiters, but Cyrus likes to tell people like, hey, I'm trying to break the record for insulin sensitivity. And if I have this meal, you're going to like crush my hopes and dreams. Can you help me out? <laughs> so uh, there's some fun stuff like that in the book. But really, it comes down to communicating. It comes down to planning. And no matter where you live, uh, you have access to grocery stores that contain healthy food. I mean, even in food deserts, it's challenging. But again, I know at PCRN, you guys have done great work, um, whether it's with Native American tribes and, and all that type of stuff. But even in food deserts, you can still find some canned beans. You can still find some, some you know, just beans in general. You can find rice. You can find healthy food just about everywhere. We were recently in St. Louis and we did some shopping at Walmart and we found an incredible amount of whole plant foods in the frozen section, in the fresh produce section. It really comes down to just planning, knowing what you're doing. And I would also suggest seeking out new, new people and, and new opportunities. I know, I mean, this person might be in uh, New Orleans, uh, I'm pretty sure if you go and look there, you're going to go to meetup.com, go to Facebook, look in Facebook groups. There are some healthy people uh, just about everywhere, and you can seek them out. And as you begin to make this lifestyle change, you'll be amazed at what types of things just start to pop up as you're changing your, your consciousness and what you're focusing on. I love that. There are healthy people just about everywhere. I, I want to know what the exception is. I'm sure that in every corner of this earth, there is at least one healthy person. If there's an exception, please prove me wrong. <laughs> you nailed it, no doubt. Uh, final question goes to you, Cyrus. And this is kind of a, a niche one, but I think that it's it's really interesting. Um, this is from Eugene. He writes, my question is related to the necessity of statin drugs and beta blockers for type 1 diabetes, regardless of cholesterol and blood pressure levels. He writes, my cholesterol is excellent and my blood pressure is great, but I'm told by doctors that statins and beta blockers should always be taken for type 1 diabetes. Is this true? I'm currently taking simvastatin and lorsatin. I'm sure I'm butchering those, but uh, he says that he's currently taking those medications just because he has type 1 diabetes. What do you have to say about that? Yeah, I was told the same thing when I was first diagnosed with diabetes. I said, oh, well, you have type 1, therefore you have to be on a statin medication. I said, but wait a minute, take a look at my cholesterol. My total cholesterol is 140 and my LDL is like 76. Why would I need to do Oh, well, it's, it's a preventative measure to make sure that your cholesterol metabolism stays, your cholesterol stays low over the course of time. Now, the reason that that mindset exists in the first place is because if you take a, uh, if you if you analyze 
what happens to your, you know, quote unquote, average person living with diabetes um, if they are not making uh, lifestyle changes to dramatically improve their health, then yes, their cardiovascular health takes a huge, huge toll. So if you're, if you're living with diabetes and you're not making any changes to your diet or you're not really like trying to improve your metabolic health, then the sad truth is that, yeah, taking cardiovascular medication to control either your cholesterol or your blood glucose, I'm sorry, your cholesterol or your blood pressure is likely to be necessary and will definitely be helpful in the long term. However, when you adopt a very powerful metabolic solution for improving your insulin sensitivity and dramatically improving your diabetes health, that solution using food as medicine becomes 10 times more powerful than any pill that you could take from the pharmaceutical industry, period, end of story. And I know Dr. Barnard has seen this. He's written about it in many of his randomized control trials, and many other researchers have seen the same thing, that when you adopt a whole food plant-based diet, that your cholesterol drops, and it drops quickly. So does your blood pressure. So does your A1C. So does your fasting insulin level. So does your post-meal insulin level. And this lifestyle change becomes a substitute for the pharmaceutical medications, and the brilliance is that there are zero side effects associated with it. So the answer to the question is, just because you're living with type 1 diabetes or any other form of diabetes does not mean that you have to be dependent on other pharmaceutical medications. Take your lifestyle into consideration and really dramatically improve your lifestyle choices. And when you do that, your dependence on pharmaceutical medications can go down dramatically and even go down to zero. The new book, Mastering Diabetes, is out now. Be sure to pick up your copy. We've posted a link to pick up a copy. Go ahead and order it. That's in the show notes for this episode. It's also up on pcrm.org slash podcast. Find a link there or just pop on over to Amazon or your favorite book retailer, and that is where you will find it. Dr. Cyrus Kambata and Robbie Barbero, gentlemen, this has been a really enlightening hour. Thank you guys so very much for being generous with your time. Thank you, Chuck. Uh, you, you're doing such a tremendous job of really getting the word out about, about how to dramatically improve your metabolic health using food as medicine. And, uh, you know, we appreciate you having us on the podcast in the first place and for just continuing to do. You are relentless in your pursuit of trying to teach people the truth. And we really, 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 truly appreciate that. So, so thank you if I haven't already said so before. Chuck, you're a living, breathing example of what is possible of long-term success on this lifestyle. So thank you for doing what you do in your own life and living it and sharing it with others. We appreciate it. Love those guys. If you're interested in purchasing the book, Mastering Diabetes, we've included a link to do so in the episode notes below. You can also hop over to Amazon or stop in your favorite bookstore to pick up a copy. I got a chance to give the book a read before the interview and was just really impressed by the amount of research that went into this thing. It was really thoroughly done. I was very, very impressed with that. And of course, the foreword was written by Dr. Barnard, as we talked about in the interview. And there's so much life-changing information in there that will have us rethink the way that we approach treating and living with diabetes. Because maybe you change up your diet you might not have to live with it for too much longer. Coming up very shortly, we're going to be dipping into the doctor's mailbag once again. Dr. Vanita Raman will be joining us, and the field will be wide open. 
not just limited to questions on diabetes. Really, we're looking for anything related to health and nutrition. It's all fair game. So send me your questions. We need them in abundance. You can tweet them to me or shoot me a message on Instagram. In both places, it is at Chuck Carroll, WLC. That's the handle. Or you can find me on Facebook and send me a message there. Tons of ways to get in touch. Just get me those questions for the next Doctor's Mailbag segment. Literally any question you have about health and nutrition, we would love to help you get an answer. And before we get out of here, I want to take a second to thank the Forks Over Knives group in Columbia, Maryland for having me come out recently and talk. Uh, I had an absolute blast. And as a matter of fact, we sold out the place for what I was told was the very first time. And that is so amazingly humbling. Being able to share my story in hopes of inspiring somebody else to lose weight and to keep it off and, and to get healthy being able to inspire people is the best feeling in the world. It's what I live for and showing somebody that it's not impossible to lose weight. It's not impossible to get healthy and it's not impossible to not only lose weight, but to keep it off for good that they can do that. When that light bulb finally goes on, man, that is amazing. Weight loss getting the scale moving in the right direction, I'm telling you, it can be done. And this Forks Over Knives group in Columbia, led by Sharon McRae, they are really doing a tremendous, tremendous job in leading the way for so many. So it was a real privilege to spend the afternoon up there, and I hope to do it again in the near future. It was also great, by the way, to meet Allison Mahoney. So I want to say hi to her as well. She's the founder of the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund. You've heard me talk about that in the past. Dr. Barnard has spoken highly of them as well. Allison was there, a phenomenal supporter of the Physicians Committee, and she has a a smile that just lit up this entire gymnasium where the event was being held. So Allison, it was really great to meet you, and I hope to get together again in the near future. I'd love to meet you too. If there's an event or a veg fest, an expo, anything like that near you, maybe it would be kind of cool to come in and tape an episode of the exam room. That would be a lot of fun as a matter of fact. So let's see if we can make that happen. Send me a message on social media and let's see if we can't figure something out. Now, here's the big question that we get. We took a lot of questions on today's show, but here's one that I get more often than anything else. And that is, how can I help? How can I pay it forward? How can I pay forward what I've learned? One of the easiest ways that you can help the next person is just by sharing the show on Facebook or tweeting about it. Really, that is the easiest thing you can do And then subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever shows are available. And when you do that, leave a five-star rating and maybe a nice review as well. Because when you do that, it helps even more people discover this this nutrition education, this potentially life-saving information. It is so important. The more five-star ratings we get, the higher our rankings climb in Apple Podcasts, and the higher the rankings, the more people will find this information. And that is how we pay it forward and help the next person lead a longer and healthier life. And that's going to do it for us this week. 
My thanks again to you for all of the incredible questions. Don't forget to send some more for the next Doctor's Mailbag segment that's coming up very shortly. And also a big thank you to Dr. Cyrus Kambata and Robbie Barbero from Mastering Diabetes. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, keep it plant-based. <laughs>